Our scripture today is Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 121 to 128. Here we will read about the attitude of a righteous slave. The attitude of a righteous slave. 119, 121. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll give us the attitude of a righteous slave. We know, Lord, that we belong to you. We belong to you as our master, the master in heaven. We ask you to teach us what it means to follow you in righteousness and to follow everything that you say, every precept, knowing that whatever our master above says is right, it's good, it is necessary, and it is what we need for our own uh, faith, for what we need for our own sanctification, and what we need to please you and to be godly in this present evil age. Grant us this attitude. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is very clear in Scripture that for the believer, we belong to a different master. Sin shall not be master over you, as it says in Romans chapter, sin, uh, Romans chapter 6. Sin shall not be master over you. Or as Jesus said, he who commits sin is the slave of sin. But if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John chapter 8. We can be and have been slaves of sin. But now we are no longer slaves of sin. As Jude tells us in Jude verse 4, our only master and Lord is Jesus Christ. Our only master and Lord is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, that we cannot serve God and mammon. We will either love the one and hate the other, or we will hold to the one and despise the other. We must be submitted to God. We must be slaves of God. And the true believer has a right attitude towards these things. It says in 1 John 5, 3, His commandments are not burdensome. The commandments of God to obey our Master in heaven, His commandments, His expectations for our life, are not considered a burden to the righteous servant. Jesus even said that His burden is, is easy and His load is light. Matthew 11. He said his burden is easy and his load is light. The load or the burden of sin is heavier. But when the true believer has had a changed heart, he knows what God has done for him. He delights in the law of God. He wants to please his master. Sin is not master over him anymore. Christ is his master. And when he is in Christ as, and Christ is his master, he is free from sin, and he is free to do the will of his master in heaven. This is what the Bible teaches. The problem, however, we have in our day 
just as in every generation since man's nature is the same, the problem we face is that we delight in sin. The flesh, and we all have the new man and we all have the old man, we who know Christ. Those who don't know Christ don't even have the new man, don't even have the new heart or the new nature. They just have the old nature, the flesh. So whether there's an unbeliever or a believer, we are all facing the flesh. And there is a warfare going on between the world, the flesh, and the devil, between all of these forces against ourselves and against God. This is what we have to withstand. This is what we have to reject. We cannot be slaves of sin anymore. Being a slave of sin manifests itself in various ways. There are many people who are slaves of themselves. They are slaves of their own pride and their ego. Many people are slaves of their pleasures and of their desires. They want to gratify every kind of desire that they can imagine, especially the ones that are the most favorite to them. They are slaves of those desires, and then it manifests itself. It manifests itself in the way they use their eyes, the way they use their mouths, the way they use their hands, places they frequent, how dedicated they are, whether they rise up early in the morning, whether they stay awake late at night to do it, whether they go great distances, spend a lot of money to do it. We are slaves in many, many ways. This is how sinful human nature manifests this desire to do what their master, that is sin and Satan, want them to do. Sin, Satan, and society are all against the, the human or man who should be in his right mind following the heavenly master. This is the way it happens. This is the problem that we face today. Let's see how David approaches it, how David looks at this. Verse 121. David, a redeemed man and prophet of God and man of God, he says, verse 121, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. He declares that he has done justice and righteousness and that God should not leave him to his oppressors, his persecutors. When he declares that he's done this, justice and righteousness, he's not boasting. He's not saying he's sinless. He's not saying he has never sinned. What he's saying is that in these particular circumstances, my oppressors are accusing me falsely. They are slandering me. They are oppressing me in this or that instance. When, when I said this or that, or when I did this or that, I was not sinning. I did your will. I was in prayer. And they caught me in prayer. Like in the case of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. I was praying to you. And when I was praying to you, I was doing justice and righteousness before your eyes. I was doing what you told me to do. And they caught me. And they said, I have broken the decree of the king. When I, in fact, they trapped me. They were oppressing me. D Daniel could pray just as David prayed here. He did what was right, and yet they accused him of doing what's wrong. This is the way a righteous servant behaves. A righteous servant or slave. And our translation would be better rendered in this passage, slave. Because we are slaves of our heavenly master in Christ. And this is the way David is. So when he says this, he has done justice and righteousness. He's declaring that in particular instances, 
He did it in faith. He did it in obedience. And therefore, God, now that I have done it your way, do not leave me. Do not abandon me. Do not let me be relegated to the ash heap of these persecutors who are destroying and wreaking havoc on the lives of many people, your people. Don't let this happen. Verse 122. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. His oppressors are now called the arrogant. They are arrogant because they have their own attitude. They have their own ways of doing things. They have their own wisdom. They want to please themselves and the people around them. They have a crowd mentality or a mob mentality because they just want to go with the flow. They want to ride on the bandwagon. They don't want to do what's right and they do it because they have people patting each other on the back and saying, this is who you are. You are a great man for doing this or that. Jesus said in John 5, How can you believe when you give glory to one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? This, this is the problem of arrogant people. They want the flattery and the praise of men. They want to please men rather than pleasing God. Therefore, they oppress the servant or slave of God. However, we have a deliverer. Right here he says in 122, Be surety for your servant for good. Be surety. Be surety or we say today, be a cosigner. Be the one who will take care of my debt. Be the one who can take care of the thing that I can't do myself. I can't pay for it myself. I have all of these problems and afflictions going on. But I can't handle it myself. So you handle it for me. I'll do whatever my responsibility is with my obligation. But you please help me, Lord. Help me because I belong to you. I am your slave. I'm not just anybody's slave. I'm your slave. And because I'm your slave, help me. Deliver me. Pay up and help me with what I'm experiencing for good. If evil is happening, but I know that you are good and you will do good for your, your slave. This is a, a man of faith speaks this way. A man of faith knows that he is weak, he's feeble, he is uh, uh, unable with his finite nature to overcome his own dilemmas in life, his own sins in life, his own persecutions in life. He knows that he is unable to do so. So he considers himself the slave of God, knowing that he has a good and heavenly master. This began in the Garden of Eden. That we all were told, we were all notified in the Garden of Eden and onward when we see the great and wonderful, abundant provision of God throughout the earth. Adam and Eve had it in the Garden of Eden and they rejected it. This was a, their problem. Their problem was that they took their eyes off of the goodness of God and they went in another direction in the way of Satan and thought that Satan was telling them something good. Satan would provide something good for them, but not true. They have to, and just as all people of faith, they look to God and they look at Him as being good, and everything that He is able to do for us as good. And God will never separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, because we know He's good and will do good on our behalf. Verse 123 my eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. My eyes fail. 
He is longingly looking upon God's salvation and God's righteous word. Longingly. It is, he takes a lot of time to read and to study. He meditates and muses upon the word of God and considers what his salvation is. He doesn't tire of it. His eyes cannot hold up because he gets sleepy, because he uh, has, has to go to bed. He has to shut his eyes at times, but his eyes, in terms of reflecting upon the Word of God, he cannot get enough of it. His, God's salvation and God's righteous Word. How is it? Is it this way that we consider the Word of God and God's salvation? Will we tire of thinking upon and meditating upon the Word of God, His righteous Word and His salvation? Or do we barely read it? Do we barely read it? Maybe a verse, maybe one verse a day. Perhaps it, it comes in your email or something because you signed up for it, and it comes in your email and that's all that you get. If you read that, nowadays who reads email? Right? How is it? How much intake of the Bible do we have? Do we consider it our salvation? Do we consider it righteous? Not wicked. And that whatever we do and learn in conformity to it is good for us. It benefits us. It's for our righteousness. So that we can overcome our own wickedness. We have to be imbibed in the Bible. We have to be engrossed in the Bible. Indulge ourselves in the Bible. Not in the world. Not in the things of the world. But the Word of God. The righteous Word of God. And therein, verse 124, he says, Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. When he is in the word of God, that this word of God, as the servant or slave of God, he will understand the loving kindness of God and he will be taught by God. God will teach him. This is a marvelous truth. Isn't it marvelous that the miraculous God can miraculously give us insight into His Word. Give us insight into His will. Give us insight into His wisdom. In a way that nobody else can understand. In a way that nobody else knows. In a way that nobody else can ever grasp. How does it come? It comes from heaven and down to us. It comes down to us because we pray to Him and we ask Him to be loving towards us. We ask Him to teach us his statutes. Many people they read the Bible, but they read the Bible with blind with blind eyes. They read the Bible with a stony heart. They read the Bible and there is no tenderness to the things of God. They read the Bible and they cannot see. You tell them one verse that's a very clear verse on a given subject and they say that's unclear. You might even give them 10 or 100 verses on the same subject. And they'll say, no, the Bible's unclear. I don't see it. I don't get it. Why? Because they are not slaves of God. They don't appreciate the loving kindness of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They don't ask God to teach me your statutes. They look into the Bible and they pick and choose here or there for things that will suit their temporary wants their temporary amb ambitions, their temporary exploits. That's what they want. They want the Bible to fit in with their life. They don't want their life, as a true slave wants, to please the heavenly master. A true slave 
will please his heavenly master and say, I know you are a loving master. I know you can teach me. You know how to do what you have told me to do. Give what you command and command what you will. Someone has once said, give what you command and command what you will. That is, give me the ability to do whatever your commandments are. Help me to understand. Give me the powerful grace to live that way. Give me conviction to believe that it's true. Help me on that path. And then, he says, command what you will. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Whether that's Moses, Moses had to, at a point, be convinced of this, to lead the millions of rebellious people for 40 years throughout the wilderness. Moses had to deal with that. And even David had to understand it in this way. That it was God who had to teach him and God's loving kindness that would sustain him throughout his trials. Who would want to experience all the persecutions that David, King David did under King Saul? Or with his rebellious Absalom who also was seeking his life. His own son was seeking his own life. Shimei, a false, uh, a false, uh, a false servant who was seeking to undermine David and to get him killed. Ahithophel, who was an advisor, a close advisor and personal counselor of David, turns against him and seeks a way for Absalom to be able to get David in David's life so that Absalom can become king. Again and again, David faced all of these trials. And yet, he wanted God to deal with him in loving kindness and for God to teach him throughout all of these trials how to live. Because he had a different heart. He knew he was God's slave and no matter what people did around him, he was going to do whatever the word of God said. He continues with that thought in verse 125. I am your servant. Simply stated. That's all that needs to be stated, is it not? I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. I am your servant. I. Who is the I? Sinful David, now redeemed. But still, he knows his need and dependence upon God. I. We could put our own names in there and say, I am your servant. Your servant, the the servant of the true and living God, the servant of his Redeemer. This is who he is. He serves, or he is a slave, to his heavenly master. And there is only one true and righteous heavenly master. That's all we need in, in our prayers. I am your servant. That says it all. But he continues, because that's true, because this relationship is true in this sense, the slave master sense, Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. I want to know. I want to know what's right. I want to do what's right. But I live in a world that's very cloudy and foggy. I live in a world where there's clamor. Everybody is shouting and screaming and bombarding me with confusion. I don't want that. I want you to give me understanding. I want to know your testimonies. I want to know what your word says. I don't want to know what people say. And I don't want to be influenced by all of that clamor and bombardment. I don't want any of that. If they do any of that, give me composure. Help me to say no. 
I am your servant. I will do what your word says. I want to understand what your word says, no matter what. In fact, also, 126, he contrasts his resolve with what he sees all around him. 126, it is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. You see, as a righteous slave, he is pleased and happy to do the will of God and to understand the will of God, but he sees all around that they have broken your law. The wicked people, they transgress the law of God. They have no concern for the law of God. Whatever conscience they have, they beat it down. They are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They make their evil conscience excusable. They say, oh, well, it's not evil, it's not wrong. You can be a Christian and do this or that. It's okay. You can be a Christian and practice this sin or that sin. There's no problem. But they have broken your law. They tear it apart. And yet Jesus said, God's word cannot be broken. John 10.35 We cannot break it if we are following it properly. Here, though, the wicked, they break it. This shows, too, that the more the true righteous slave of God is following the word of God, he will notice what's happening all around him. He will notice how much the world has plunged themselves into ruin and destruction. He will notice how much the world is so blind to the ways of God. They have no thought or very little thought of the things of God. They give lip service to the things of God. This happens in heightened fashion the closer we draw near to God because God is holy. And the more we see the holiness of God, we will see the unholiness of sinful man. So what needs to happen? It is time for the Lord to act. Now, he's not calling on God as though God has been derelict in his duties as God and master and creator and judge of the universe. It's not as though he's doing that. He's simply saying, Lord, it has become so evident to me that you need to intervene. You need to act because there's nothing I can do to overcome all of this wickedness. You have to do it, Lord. You are all-powerful. And whether you choose in this life to bring sickness upon somebody or to put somebody to death or to bring some kind of natural calamity to strike against him so that he suffers and even dies, you do it. And especially on the Day of Judgment. When God acts on the Day of Judgment, it will be righteous. It will be in righteousness. In righteousness that he acts and judges the world. It will be the Lord Jesus Christ on the Day of Judgment who does this very thing. And it will be in righteousness. Acts 17, 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So, if we do not respond properly by rejecting wickedness and pursuing righteousness, God will act in righteousness on that day of judgment. He will act 
And God the Father has appointed His Son to be the judge of the universe. 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, he says, therefore, after saying the preceding, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. He has contemplated the difference between temporary things and eternal things. He has contemplated the difference between his slavery to sin and now his slavery to Christ. He has contemplated the difference between what righteousness is and what wickedness is. He has contemplated all of this and come to the right conclusion. I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. You cannot bring enough wealth into his presence. You cannot bring enough money. You cannot bring enough gold, precious gold, fine gold, purified gold, 24 karat gold. You cannot bring enough of this into his presence for him to love that above the commandments of God. Gold is to him like the ash of a fire heap. Gold is to him like the chaff blowing in the wind. Gold is to him like the stubble that's worthless and all the thorns and thistles on the ground. That's the way gold is to him. Because he loves the commandments of God. Because the commandments of God will give him access to a heavenly place, a heavenly city where there are streets of gold. And where there is no sin. And where there will be the holy and righteous God present there forever and ever. He knows the difference. He knows that the commandments of God are worth more than anything else in this world. This is why the Bible so often speaks of wealth or the use of money or our relationship to money and speaks of it in, in these ways. There are many people in the Bible, many of them who had wealth, but they did, did not misuse that wealth. They had the proper use of that wealth. They had the proper attitude towards that wealth. But there are also many examples in the Bible of those who had wealth and abused it and how they loved it and they walked away from God and the things of God or they pretended to love God. David, however, a wealthy man himself, a king, who collected much gold, gold for the temple of God, so that Solomon, his son, could build. But he did have food every day, except when he was being persecuted and had to flee. Yet, as king, for most of his reign, he did have stability. He had all the food he wanted every day. He had all the wealth he wanted every day. But he didn't love it. He used it for the kingdom of God. We should love God and use our wealth. Don't love our wealth and use God. This is the right attitude. To love the commandments of God above gold. To what extent? Verse 128 will tell us. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. He says, therefore, because he loves the Word of God, because he loves the Word of God, he's emphasizing the fact now that he considers every part, every syllable, every word of the Word of God right, righteous, true, just. He knows it is what God has expected him to know. 
for him to believe, for him to obey. He esteems it. He esteems the Word of God concerning everything. There is not a subject that the Bible touches that is wrong. There is not a subject that the Bible addresses where the Bible is inaccurate. When the Bible touches any topic, any controversy, anything that we might present, the Bible's perspective on that issue is correct. It's right, according to David here. I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Concerning everything. Whether that is the nature of man, the way of salvation, who God is, who Christ is, the devil, the existence of the devil and his malicious nature, whether it is in regards to science and the role of science and the Bible, whatever the Bible says and it touches upon science, the Bible is correct. Whatever the Bible says about history, the Bible addresses many historical incidents. Whatever it says about history, it is correct. And whatever is outside of the Bible must conform to the Bible for us to have an accurate view of history. Whatever the Bible says about marriage, whatever the Bible says about a man marrying a woman, that is true and that is right. It's not man and, and woman having sexual intercourse before marriage. It's in marriage. What the Bible says about that is true and right. When the Bible says that it's one man marrying a woman, then that's the way it should be. It's not a man with a man. It's not a woman with a woman. It's not a woman with an animal. It's not a man with an animal. It's not even a man or a woman with a robot. It's nothing like that. Or with the trees or anything out there. These are the wicked things that happen. Whatever the Bible says about these issues is correct. We can go on and on with many, many subjects. Whatever the Bible says on those subjects is correct. That's what David declares here concerning everything. He also adds that all of his precepts, all of God's precepts, and he emphasizes he does mean all because he says, I hate every false way. It's not as though David hates some false ways. He hates every false way, just as he considers every precept of God right. This reminds us of the fact that every word of God is correct, is accurate, it's true, it's righteous, it's what we need to know. We cannot reject some of the word of God and accept the other, or to make one part of the Bible contradict another part of the Bible. It says in Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He reprove you, and you be proved a liar. Every word of God is tested. That is the language of God's word being put into a hot fire, like gold and silver are put into the, the fire and tested in the fire. Every word of God has been tested, and it is completely and wholly pure. Every word of God is pure. And he says, do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. We should not add to the word of God or take away from it. Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32 both warn us not to add or to take away from the Bible. Revelation 22 teaches us the same. 
Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Never, ever add to the Bible or take away from the Bible. You see, there are two kinds of sins that we commit, common within Christianity. That is to add to the Bible or to take away from the Bible. Sometimes the Bible says, don't turn to the right or to the left. If I may use that analogy to describe the two common sins that we have. One common sin, going to the right, means to add to the Bible. When we go and to the right and add to the Bible, we are being just like the scribes and the Pharisees. We add to the Bible, we add the traditions of men, and we say the tra these traditions of men are good, or we might even say these traditions of men are actually coming from God, just from another source. And we'll also say these traditions of men do not contradict the Bible. In fact, they are in harmony with the Bible. They conform to the Bible. So these traditions of men are good. And there are many, many traditions that churches erect. Whether formal and high churches or informal and low churches. Whether it is the, the, the Pentecostal churches or Baptist churches, Catholic churches and Orthodox churches. You go from low to high. It doesn't matter. In every kind of church in between, there are traditions of men that people prop up and they say with a smile on their face, with a degree behind them, with a handsome look and a, and a smile, they'll say, these traditions don't contradict the Bible. No, no, we would never do that. When actually they do. Anybody who has any spiritual sense, anybody with any objectivity and fairness will say, they contradict the Bible. We should not add to the Bible. When you add to the Bible, you make that practice, that belief, contradict the Bible. But on the other hand, there are some who reject considering God's precepts right concerning everything, all His precepts concerning everything, and that's moving to the left. We might say that is practicing liberty or Christian liberty in the wrong sense of the term, in the wrong unbiblical sense of the term. They say we are uh, free in Christ. We have Christian liberty. And that shows itself with these people taking away from the Bible. These are the people who take away from the Bible. The Bible says a believer should not marry an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Believer and unbeliever should not marry one another. And they say, well, no, no, we, that's not, that was only for the Corinthians. It's not for us. We don't need to follow that part of the Bible. That's not for us. They take away from the Bible. Why? To justify how they want to have a believer marry an unbeliever. This happens all the time. It happens every day. Believers marrying unbelievers, they take away from what the Bible says in order to practice whatever they want to practice. And they will say it as though it's not sin. It conforms to the Bible. You don't have to follow this or that part of the Bible because that was not meant for us to obey. It was not meant for us to understand and to practice just like that. You don't have to do that. They will even do that. 
They will even do that with parts of the New Testament and huge parts of the New Testament. There is, in a sense, a fulfillment of the law of Moses for the Old Testament, some parts of the Old Testament. There is a fulfillment. And hermeneutically, in terms of interpretation and proper interpretation of the Bible, there are explanations and good explanations for that. But there are parts of the New Testament, obvious parts of the New Testament, that Christians throughout the centuries have known the obvious meaning and interpretation of those passages. It is those passages that those who sway and swerve to the left, they're the ones who say, no, 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 those parts don't apply to us. We don't need to do that. They take away or subtract from the Bible. Yet David says, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Which now tells us, once we know and are convinced that what the Bible says from beginning to end is what all we need. It is our life. It's the word of truth. It is the word that uh, saves us from our sins. Once we know this and believe this, then we should consider any deviation from it a false way. Any and every. He says, I hate every false way. We ought to consider how dangerous it is for someone to presume to add to the Bible or to take away from the Bible. The moment we see that happening, we should consider that it is a false way. It's wrong. It's false. And it is perilous. It is perilous. We must say it's perilous because James says in James 2.10, He who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Only one sin makes us guilty. And if we practice that sin and we justify that sin, we don't repent of that sin, that sin pronounces a sentence of death on our head. Only one sin. Was it not only one sin in the Garden of Eden that brought ruin and destruction to all mankind? It was only one sin. It's only one sin even in, in the Law of Moses. Many of the Ten Commandments were broken throughout the history of Israel. And whenever that commandment was broken, God pronounced a sentence of death. God announces these sins time and again throughout the Old Testament. And He says, you deserve to die for doing that. You deserve to die for doing that. Just read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And it becomes quite obvious that the people practice this or, or that sin. And he, they are constantly telling the people, you deserve death. You deserve to be exiled for, for your sins. So, we should consider any deviation from the word a false way. And actually hate every false way. Remember, he says, I love your commandments. And then now he says, I hate every false way. Our convictions about what's true, what's righteous, what's holy, what pleases our heavenly master should be so strong that we will not deviate from what the Bible says. Let's have this kind of attitude. The attitude of a righteous slave. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father, grant to us this attitude. May we live this way day by day, knowing that your word is true, granted to us by your holy servants, the prophets and, um, and apostles, 
and given by the Spirit, moving them to pen what they write here for us. These are true words. Granted to each of us to believe this, to our children and grandchildren, may we, Lord, spread this truth to the people around us and grant us to be a faithful slave. And may Christ be able to say of us, well done, good and faithful slave. In his name we pray. Amen.